things when you start looking at an idea that the Bible repeats over and over and over and over and over and over and over, you start to realize that if God says that much about it, He must really think it's very important. In fact, this is a subject that is mentioned in 1,400 different verses. One out of two parables that Jesus spoke had something to do with this subject. If you look in the New Testament, every six verses on average has something to do with this particular subject. This subject is one of those that I believe the reason God repeats it so much is because you are forced in your everyday life to think about it so much. If you decided that you were going to come and bring something for lunch today and you didn't cook it last night or the night before, you might have had to stop at Publix and pick some of it up. And so if you did happen to stop at Publix and pick some of it up, you, uh, let's say, I mean, I'm not saying this happens on a regular basis, but let's say somebody got some fried chicken. Uh, a box of fried chicken from Publix for a afternoon lunch between services. And you go to the front there at Publix, and I don't know if you use the self-checkout, you, you scan the box, and then what do you do? You've got to have something to pay for that. And you decide that you'll take out your wallet and maybe use a card or use cash, whatever it is. But you're going to have to think about money every single day. Uh, depending on what you're going to do tomorrow, do you have the gas to do that? If you don't have the gas, you're going to have to stop and get that. If you are going to have a house that has any type of air conditioner or heating, you're going to have to pay a bill. You are going to have to think about money on a regular basis. And God knew that. And so that's why he talks so much about money. I am going to challenge you to believe what the Bible says about money. Now, if you're here on a Sunday morning for Bible class, you in your mind think, okay, Kyle, of course I believe what the Bible says about money. I believe what the Bible says about everything. Do you, though, really believe what the Bible says about money? Let me ask you a question. You're working at your job. Your boss comes to you and says, hey, I see that you've been working hard. You've been doing a great job this year. I would like to, let's say you make $50,000 a year. I don't know what you make. But your boss says, if it's okay with you, I would like to give you a 10% raise and give you a $5,000 bonus this year. Would you mind that? You know, I've never met a person, never talked to a person, never seen the person who says, you know what, no, uh, you, you just keep that. I don't really need the extra five grand, and I'm doing fine. In fact, you know, I was thinking I kind of get overpaid for what I do, and if you could just never seen a person do that. In a lot of ways, a $5,000 bonus would be a blessing to you, wouldn't it? There are lots of things you could do with the $5,000 you have probably plans that you and your wife or spouse, if you're married, are working through, and you think, oh, hey, with this $5,000, this could... And you think about a lot of stuff you could do with that. Could be a real blessing. Now, uh, somebody comes to your congregation, and they're a missionary, maybe in Thailand, and they start telling you all the good work that they're doing in Thailand, and they say, we've got this orphanage, and we need to raise $100,000, and there are 20 family units in this congregation, and I'm going to give you the opportunity to give $5,000 to that. Now, who's in? 
Okay, now I ask you to believe what the Bible says about giving. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, you're going to listen to Jesus Christ make this statement. Well, you're going to listen to Paul repeat a statement that Jesus made when he says, when he says and remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ when he said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Uh, do you really believe that? Do you really believe it's more blessed to give than receive? Do you think it's better in your life to give away $5,000 to a cause that expands the kingdom and the gospel than it is to get $5,000? Uh, we say we do. We on paper would write yes to that, but practically speaking, do you think it is? You see, I've never met a person who says, I don't want the $5,000 raise. I've met many people who say, I don't want to take the opportunity to give $5,000 to a, a good thing that will spread the borders of the kingdom and help the world out. Because ultimately there are some people who do not believe that the Bible is telling them the truth when it says it's more blessed to give than receive. Now, why I love teaching about giving and stewardship is because I believe it's a singular decision that can change the course of your life forever and have seen it done in any number of congregations when preaching on biblical stewardship and giving was done and a person decided to obey that and change their life in that regard. I will have gone back to that congregation three, four, five, six years later and a person will come up to me and shake my hand and say, my life, our life, our family's life was changed because we made a decision that day to give scripturally from then on. And let me tell you how that worked. I love preaching on money because the Bible has so much to say about it and it's so life-changing and you can be more blessed if you really do accept what the Bible teaches about. And so we're going to start with some very simple principles about what the Bible says about money. Principle number one, you don't own anything. Now let that sink in a minute. Uh, of course, we understand what the Bible says about private property in some regards in the Old Testament and the New, but there is a very serious sense in which everything you ever have was never yours to start out with and it'll be somebody else's when you're gone and you never owned it, you were just a steward. I want you to turn your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and I think it's right there in about verses 2 or 3. You're going to read this statement. It's a very simple statement. Here's what it says. Moreover, in a steward, it is required that a steward be found faithful. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, right there in verse, oh, I'll look at it, it's 2 or 3. Uh, verses... I just, I just remember where stuff is on the page, and lots of times, there it is, verse 2. Moreover, it's required in a steward that one be found faithful. Now, what does that mean, that it's required in a steward that a person be found faithful? A steward is somebody who doesn't own the thing that they've been entrusted with. They are somebody who has been given some authority to use something, but they are responsible to use it in a way that the person who actually owns it wants them to use it. 
And so as we're looking at that idea of stewardship, that's what the Bible discusses in relation to us and our money, that we are not owners of money, we are stewards of money. And here's how that works. You understand it on a very uh, practical level. You go to the bank, you deposit $3,000. Open an account, deposit $3,000. You come back in about well, two weeks, three weeks, and you say, hey, I'd like to withdraw $500 of the $3,000 that I deposited a couple weeks ago. The bank says, wow, you know, that would, would be something. That would be uh, probably, you'd like that. But uh, when you gave it to us, we assumed it was ours. And do you see the updates to this foyer and the bank uh, building that we've done some new things with? We used your $3,000 to redecorate our foyer, and we appreciate you depositing that here. Okay, if a bank ever lost the idea of stewardship and felt like when people put money into the bank, it was their money, would the people depositing the money have a problem with that? Oh. You know, real problem. Now, you can understand that. Maybe you're looking at a college student who is invited to work in a certain city and there's a member of the church there who's going somewhere for the summer and they're going to let this college student stay in their house. And she's going to be a steward of, the college, of that house that she's staying in. She's going to need to water the plants and maybe there's a pet that needs to be fed, etc. But she walks into the house and she's the steward of the house, but she doesn't feel like the... Uh, wall that separates the living room from the dining room should be there. And so she decides that she feels like an open layout would be much better and so she has a demolition company come in and take out that wall and she decides that hot pink is a much better color than the very neutral colors that are on the wall and so she repaints the interior of the house and does several other things and when the people come back to their house it doesn't look a thing like their house and they ask her what in the world she has done to it and she said oh I thought you were just letting me have it and do what I wanted to with it but she was a steward and a steward is somebody who has to ask the question what does the owner want me to do with it and a faithful steward is someone who only uses the stuff in a way that the owner would permit that person to use it. You understand? So we need to ask ourselves this question on a basic philosophical level. Do I really believe that I'm stewarding God's money? Or have I become disillusioned to think that I really own it, I can do whatever I want to with it. Now, uh, here's what, what is going to happen. There's lots of stewardship discussion, stewarding the abilities and the talents that God has given to you, stewarding the time that God has given to you. There are lots of things you can discuss in stewardship. I'm here today just to talk about stewardship of money. Now, that doesn't mean that's the only thing that stewardship applies to. It's just the only thing I'm going to have time to talk to you about, and I'm not even going to have time to get through all the stuff that I've got. I've got 13 lessons on this, written a book on this. This is a topic that you can talk about extensively, and I'm just going to get to, we'll do a little bit more than scratch the surface. We'll get a little bit deeper than just a scratch, but it won't be a complete discussion, but it will just be talking about finances and money. That's what we're discussing. Now, other stuff needs to be stewarded in a similar way, but that's not what we're discussing here. So, 
How do you know that you are just a steward of God's stuff? I want you to turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 50. And in Psalm chapter 50, you're going to read some fairly well-known statements. It's one of the more well-known psalms. You look there in verse 7 of Psalm 50. Here... O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I will not reprove you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. Verse 9, I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world is mine and all its fullness. Now probably the phrase that most of us are familiar with is, the cattle on a thousand hills are God's. Okay, when you think about that picture, I grew up in Middle Tennessee, most everybody there, if you have 20 acres of land, you put cows on it for any number of reasons. And one of them is you can count it as a farm and write it off on your taxes. And so as long as you got 12 cows, uh, it might not even be 12 now, nine, you can count it like a farm and boom. So everybody does. It. Everybody, everybody throws cows on their property. And in, in my mind, I can see what I think is the, the most uh, tranquil, rural picture that I've got is a, is a rolling hill of beautiful green grass and about 25 very fat, sleek, black Angus cows grazing peacefully on the side of this green pasture. And, and I see them on a hill and then there in the valley there's a barn and there's an F-250 truck sitting there in front of the barn with feed sacks in the back. And this is a small town farm scene. Now you ask the simple question, who owns the cows on that hill? You know, you're tempted to say, the farmer does. Now there's a real easy way you can realize that the farmer doesn't own them. And that you don't own anything. If the farmer dies... Whose are they tomorrow? Well, they're not his anymore. You see, we're all going to die eventually and leave everything that we've been entrusted with, and it's going to be somebody else's the day that we're gone. Because it never really was ours. So let's ask the question again, who owns the cows on that hill? Oh, God owns those. He's allowing the farmer to have some stewardship over those cows. And then guess what? Who owns the truck? Now you think, well, I mean, yeah, God owns the cows on a thousand hills, but, but everybody who goes by the F-250 truck, they own it theirself. No, God owns the truck too. He owns the barn. He owns all of that. When we were at college, there was a professor who was well known for having a truck that he would let freshmen use who were moving things in that didn't have a truck they would drive up and they would need to get maybe from the year before their couch out of the storage building and so they knew they could go ask this professor to use his truck well the 
story was that if you went to ask this professor to use his truck, the freshman or the person coming to ask him would say, hey, can I use your truck? He would say, yeah, you can use the truck, but it's not mine. And they would look perplexed and say, well, whose is it? He said, well, it's not mine. It's God's truck. And they would chuckle a little bit and say, oh, okay. And then he would say meaningfully, and God doesn't like scratches on his truck. You know, I don't know what God thinks about scratches on a truck, but I do know that that man understood proper stewardship. And that is, you don't own it. You've been entrusted with the use of it with the condition that you need to ask the question, what would the owner want done with it? And that is stewardship. And so, let's see a little bit more how this plays out in Deuteronomy chapter 8. I want you to turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 8. And we're going to start in verse 7 of Deuteronomy chapter 8, and we're going to try to weed out of our minds some false ideas that most people in the world have about money and stewardship of that money. And once you look in verse 7... And go with me, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. Doesn't that sound exciting to the Israelites? A wonderful land that has beautiful flowing springs. You're going to have a source of fresh water to drink at your leisure. You're going to have bread without scarcity. You're going to have trees that grow pomegranates and all sorts of edible fruit. This is going to be great. Now he's contrasting this to where they had been. Wandering around in the wilderness for the last 40 years. This is where they were now. They had not crossed over the Jordan and had not gotten into the promised land. And he says, you're going into a land, you didn't build the houses, but you're going to get to live in. It's going to be a land where you don't have to carry buckets of water because you're going to be able to live right by a stream that runs right by your house. It's going to be exciting. How do you compare to the Israelite who went into the promised land? Uh, I don't have a pomegranate tree in my backyard. But I get to eat pomegranate areals. I like that word too, areals. I don't know why they call them that. But it's the little tiny seeds in pomegranates that are very hard to get out. I don't know if you've ever bought a pomegranate just to try to eat it and personally tried to get the areals out of it. I don't know what kind of machine they've got. But you can go to... I go to Kroger. I, we don't have a Publix. I would probably shop at Publix, at least the BOGO. But Kroger has got some pretty good deals periodically, and lots of times their fresh fruit, uh, they have to mark it down because it's been there a day or two and it's getting less fresh. And so you can get a thing of pomegranate areals for $2.50 and eat pomegranate areals that not only did you not grow the tree, you didn't pick the pomegranate, and then you didn't spend any time getting the little things out of the pomegranate to eat them for $2.50. Now, how is it that I get to eat a pomegranate and don't have to do any work for it? In an air-conditioned building, 
that I drove to the building in my air-conditioned car or heated car. You take a person in the promised land who has walked into the promised land, they've been wandering around in the wilderness, and now they've got all this stuff, and you sit them on the pew right here, and then you sit next to them and ask yourself a simple question. Out of the two of you, who is more financially prosperous? The uh, 1450 B.C. Israelite who's gone into the promised land and now doesn't have to carry buckets of water because they got a stream beside their house or you who can go to your refrigerator and stick a glass to the refrigerator button and get crushed ice and then the kind of water that you want. Do you believe that any Israelite ever had the opportunity to drink any type of fruit juice with crushed ice? Never. Probably never. Did they have a mechanism on their house that they didn't build wall that they could go up to it and put, I want it to be 71 degrees all the time. And incidentally, I don't want any bugs in my house. And so we're going to spray some stuff for bugs. We're not going to have any bugs. And I'm going to have the temperature exactly what I want. No. Okay, whatever is being discussed here with the Israelites applies to us in space. Because literally, we are living in the most prosperous country in the history of human life. Literally. You are the richest people. I am the richest people in the whole world ever for all time in all of history. Now, that's exciting in a lot of ways. A lot of people want to say, well, if you have money, if you are rich, that's something you should feel guilty about. It's something that you should feel burdened with. It's something that should make you uncomfortable. That's not true at all. Never what God has asked any rich person to do, to feel guilty about the money that God has blessed them with. No, never. In fact, watch what Moses says to the Israelites who are going into the promised land. Verse 10. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which He has given you. Okay, here's, here's the simple thing. When you get to go to Kroger and eat pomegranate or reels that you didn't grow the tree or get them out of the actual pomegranate, what should you do? Thank you, God, for letting me have this delicious food. I appreciate what you've done for me, and I know it comes from you, and I'm very thankful for that. He says, when I give you all this stuff, and I'm going to, then what you need to do is be thankful. Okay, great, exciting. But watch the next verse. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God, by not keeping the commandments, His judgments and His statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful homes and you live in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold. Notice verse 17. He goes on the list, keeps going. Then he says, Then you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand gain me this wealth. He said, the problem is when you think you've got it because you earned it or you deserve it. Guess what? You don't have money because you've earned it or you deserve it. It's not yours anyway. God has given it to you. Now, let's process that because a lot of people uh, 
view their, their value based on how much money they have. And they are very uh, tied, their, their individuality or their uh, picture of themselves is tied to how much money they make. Let me explain to you what I mean when I say you don't have money because you've worked for it or you deserve it or somehow that you've acquired it based on your own wisdom and ingenuity. Uh, there'll be a person that says, well, Kyle, you don't understand. I, I've worked hard for the money that I've got. Uh, I get up every single day. I work six days a week. I work about 10 hours a day. And the reason I've got the money that I've got is because I'm a hard worker. That's not true. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. We were in uh, Honduras after the hurricane several years ago. And there were people that would get up seven days a week at the crack of dawn, go into a tiny field smaller than this that was filled with rocks that they would scrape and dig and fertilize and do everything they could for 10 hours a day, seven days a week till it got dark from light to dark to plant enough food so that in the course of their life, working, seven hours a, working 10 hours a day, seven days a week, listen to me, in the course of their life, they would never bring in as much money as you bring in in a month. Now, you work harder than them. No. And yet you're going to bring in in one month more money than they'll make in the course of their life? Yes. Now you look at that and say, wow, uh, that seems not fair. I mean, why does God bless me with so much money and he does? Well, hold on just a second. Uh, who is it going to be harder for to get into heaven? You or the person who makes in their entire life what you make in a month? You see, lots of times we look at physical money, monetary blessings, and we think, oh, that, that's blessing. That, that is what, as we think about God blessing a person, that's what a real blessing is. Except as you look through the Bible, you'll realize Jesus on a number of occasions says, children, how hard is it for a rich man to get into heaven? And when he said that, his apostles were astonished. And they said, if it's hard for a rich person to get into heaven, then who then can be saved? And you'll remember Jesus saying, how hard is it? For a rich person to get into heaven, it is harder or more difficult for a rich person to get into heaven than it is to stick a camel through a needle's eye. Now, I think it's interesting to look at the exchange between Satan and God in the discussion of Job and Satan is talking to God and God says, Have you looked at my servant Job? There's none like him in all the earth, one who fears God and shuns evil. And Satan says, Yeah, well, because you've put a hedge around him and you've blessed him. And Satan's implication, his accusation there is, it's easier to do right if you've got money. Do you know that's false? That's a false accusation. It's not easier to do right if you have more money. In fact, what you find out is many of the most affluent places in the world, if you go knock on their door and try to talk to them about Jesus, the chances of you getting to a discussion about Jesus are practically zero. 
But you go down to the streets of Panama where people are literally living in houses that the door stays open all the time and there is no air conditioning. The, uh, the thing that they're trying to do that day is just have enough to eat. And you say, do you want to talk about Jesus? And they look around and say, there's got to be something better than this. Yeah, I'll talk to you about Jesus. You'll sit here and talk to me about it. Okay, so the idea that you've got money or I've got money because we work hard that's just not true. There are a lot of people that work way harder than us. They all will have less money for their whole life, barely be able to eat. Now, you're starting probably, if you're, if you're thinking scripturally, to think of the Proverbs and listen to some of those Proverbs and see how those Proverbs say that hard work is often rewarded by God. And that is absolutely true. Will you have more money if you work hard than if you're lazy and don't work hard? Yes, absolutely. That's a biblical principle. Do you have the money you have because you work hard? No. It's because God has put you in a position where your labor for one month will make more money for you than 50% of the entire world's population's lifetime salary. Now, we don't have money because we work hard. You say, yeah, Kyle, but I'm, uh, I'm frugal. Uh, not only do I, do I work hard, but I watch what I do with my money. A lot of people at church, they go eat out all the time and they buy a new car and they do stuff like that. But I am very frugal. I watch my money. I am very particular about where it goes. I'm a frugal person. Okay, you don't, you don't have money because you're frugal. Uh, are you this frugal? Have you ever pulled your car over because you saw an entire tire uh, a whole tire on the side of the road and you got that tire and you were so excited that you took it back to your house and you used a knife to cut it into shape of your family's feet and tied what we would call uh, bailing twine to it and made flip-flop type shoes for your whole family out of a tire on the side of the road and you wore those shoes till they got a hole in them you ever done that? I haven't. But I know people who have. I've been in places around the world where that's literally where they get their shoes. I mean, now some of us get real frugal. I mean, you know, real frugal. And we'll, uh, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But I mean, some of those Ziploc bags are pretty tough. And I mean, they're probably not that dirty anyway, and just a good rinse and then flip them inside out and pop them over the, uh, you know, drying rack. Uh, are you frugal enough that you save Ziploc bags? Now, I buy the little, uh, there, you can see I do some Kroger shopping. I, but anyway, I buy the, there's a little uh, turkey. It, it's Oscar Mayer, I think, turkey. And it comes in a little Tupperware thing that is flimsy. It's not like real Tupperware, but it, it's Tupperware-ish. And it can pack lunches and stuff. And I feel like I'm getting a two-for-one. Not only am I getting turkey, but I'm also getting a new little Tupperware thing. And I mean, I've, I've, I, then my wife says, hey, uh, you know, we can't have 40 Tupperwares here. I mean, we got we to, at some point, anyway, I say all that to say, I'm, I'm pretty frugal in some way. But guess what? You're not frugal because, I mean, you, you don't have money because you're frugal. If you're frugal, will you have more? Okay, yeah. But that's not why you've got any. You've got the money you've got because God knows that you can handle in a good way the amount of money he's let you have. 
He is not saying you do handle it in a good way, although many of us maybe do. But he's saying you have the capacity to handle this in a way that I want you to handle it. And that's why you have the money you've got. You could go through that and say, well, I'm wise, I'm a wise investor. Do you think Job was a wise investor the day before he lost everything in the world that he had? Sure he was. He was a hard worker. He was probably frugal. He was a wise investor in that he had all kinds of cattle and sheep and camels and oxen. And then in one day he loses every bit of it. Why? Because he somehow made a, a wrong business decision? No, because God at that time said, this is my stuff, I'm taking it back. Okay, the only reason you and I have a dime is because God has said, I believe this person can use it in a way that I want them to use it. And I'm going to let them have it. Okay, you're a steward. Now, notice what the text says, verse 18, And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. The reason you've got anything is because God has given you the health, God has given you the resources, God has put you in a place in the world that's allowed you to acquire the financial resources that you've got. Okay, great. Nothing to be uh, uh, feel guilty about. Nothing to say, oh no, I've got to unload all of these things because anybody who's got stuff is bad. No, there's, a, there, there's an idea in certain societies that, well, if you've got something and somebody doesn't, you should feel bad about it and you should just make sure you try to equal it all. Okay, no. He says when you realize that you've got money and recognize that it's from God, the way to process that is thank God for giving it to you. And then, and then ask this question. What does God want me to do with it? That's what a steward asks. What does God want me to do with it? And so, when you look in the Bible, here's what you find out. God wants you to ask that question first before you ask any other question about money. The first thing God has always asked from His people in regard to money is, you, that is the most peaceful bell I've ever heard. You know, normally it's, it's an alarm, like everybody needs to get up and leave for a fire. But that, that right there just makes you feel like something good's about to happen in the next five minutes. I need to, requ I need to request that in, in other congregations. All right. Uh, here's, the, here's the first thing. that Here's what God wants you to do first. He wants you to set aside a certain amount to give to Him before anything else. Now, in Matthew chapter 6, what verses 33 and following, uh, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all of these things will be given to you. I'm going to give you the story that I think is fascinating in this regard. Why don't you turn to 1 Kings? Uh, I don't know if you've read this story. This is Elijah. You'll read about what's going on in James chapter 5. Elijah has prayed that it won't rain and it's not going to rain for three and a half years. This is in the middle of a famine where it hasn't rained for three and a half years. And Elijah had been being fed by God by a creek, basically what we would call it, a brook. 
and ravens were bringing him food and he was drinking water out of the brook. But the brook dried up and so God sends him up to a place on the edge of Israel called Zarephath to a widow who has a child there in Zarephath. And this widow is starving and looks like she's literally about to be starving to death with her son. And I want you to read what Elijah asked her to do. There in verse 10, So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was gathering sticks, and he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, all right, stop right there. He says, can you bring me some water in a cup? This is a widow who has one child. He says, can you bring me some water? At the time that he made that request, the most valuable substance in the area was water. He's asking her for the most valuable thing. You can go 40 days without eating food. You can go three days without eating water. It's not going to have rained in Israel or the surrounding area for three and a half years. So apparently she has some small supply of this. And he says, can you get me a little cup of water? And she goes to get it. Now I, I see her walking away. She's been picking up some sticks. She's walking away to get it. And Elijah says, well, watch verse 11. And as she was going to get it, he called to her while she's walking away and says, please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. Oh, you know, just by the way, could you just get me some bread and water, the two most valuable things in the entire area right now? Now that's when I see she's walking away and I see her shoulders just slump and her turn around to Elijah and give him this speech. Now notice what she says. She says, as the Lord your God lives, I don't have bread. I've got a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering. Now notice the, notice the uh, diminutive statements about the stuff. I've got a handful of bread. I've got a little oil in a jar. And I'm picking up a couple sticks. I'm picking up two tiny little sticks so I can make a fire that will be plenty big to cook the little amount of flour I've got. And notice this, that I may go in and prepare for myself, my son, that we may eat it and die. This is the last amount of food we've got. I've got a handful of flour and a tiny bit of oil. It's going to take two sticks to cook it, and that's going to be our last meal we'll ever eat. Now, you and I look at this and say, well, it's not more blessed to give in this, in this case. I mean, if that's all the widow's got, then you just leave that with the widow. Okay, no, because you're misunderstanding how God views and treats money and giving and stewardship. If it's more blessed to give than receive, and as we look at how God does things, sowing and reaping, etc., we look at that and say, wow, you just leave that with a widow. God says no. Notice what Elijah says. And Elijah said to her, don't fear. Go and do as you've said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me. The gall of Elijah. You've got a widow and her son who've got enough to eat one meal and then literally they believe they're going to die. And Elijah says, as a representative of God, give to me first. How, how do you think a God who looks at that situation and, and wants that to be the case, what is God doing there? 
But notice what Elijah says, and we'll finish it up. For thus says the Lord your God of Israel, The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. I'll tell you, if you give to God first, He'll take care of you. What if this widow had said, No, I'm not giving to God first in this case. I don't even have enough to take care of myself. If God gave to me first, then I would take care. But no, I'm not giving. What if she did not answer the call, did not give to the request of Elijah and ate that little piece of bread? What would have happened to her and her son? They would have died. What happened to her and her son when she gave to God first? They lived. Because it's always more blessed to give than receive. God's going to take care of you. And the way he is going to do that is ask you as a steward of his stuff, give to me first. And when you give to God first, what you're going to see in the rest of these lessons is God is going to make sure you're taken care of. Appreciate you being here for class. Look forward to the rest of the day.